First You Think is a not-for-profit ministry of the First Unitarian Church of Des Moines. Support us at ucdsm.org today. When I am here in St. Paul, most nights I sing my baby grandchild down to sleep. We live in an old duplex side by side with him and his parents. And this is precisely why we bought this house so that I can do this. We dance the slow baby waltz, he and I around his room as he grows heavier and heavier with sleep and the room just fills up with darkness and gratitude. But before we start the singing and the dancing, we say goodnight to all the objects in his room. Good night, animals and blocks. Good night, lamp. Good night, humidifier. Good night, window, always in the same order, and ending each time with a little cloth mobile on the ceiling. Good night, moon and stars. Good night, planets. Good night, comets. Good night, sun. I don't know what he makes of this. I don't know what he actually thinks about astrophysics and cosmology. I look forward to finding out. But for now, I just want him to feel as he's falling asleep, as the poet Zia Haider does. There's an enormous comfort knowing we all live under this same sky. In half the world, you know, it's dark right now. On other continents, there are millions of people dancing in the dark with babies in their arms, saying goodnight to the planets and the stars. And sometimes I think about that in the busy daytime, how elsewhere in the world people are sleeping. And at night when I can't sleep, I sometimes try to remember that in other places, people are just getting up or having lunch, or working, or giving birth, or dying, or swimming in the warm waters of New Zealand. I don't know why, but there is enormous comfort knowing we live under the same sky. Some years ago, I was at the church I served then, late at night, all by myself, just just locking up. It was just this time of year, deep winter, dark, cold. There had been that night a congregational meeting to vote on some huge thing, actually two huge things, the decision to build a new sanctuary and also and start a capital campaign. And also in the same meeting, this was years ago, a vote to formally oppose President Bush's war in Iraq. Both votes passed beautifully with much beautiful, passionate discussion, and both were major milestones for that church. So people lingered to talk about it, and then they drifted out. And I was just leaving when the phone rang and the caller said, go outside right now to the parking lot, face north, look up, just do it, and turn out the lights when you go. So strange counsel, right? but from a trusted member. So I did that. And that night, for the very first time in my life, I saw the Northern Lights. I had only barely even heard of the Northern Lights before moving to Minnesota. I'm pretty sure I didn't think that they were real, that maybe some kind of Scandinavian legend they have here, but it was real. I looked up and I almost fell down in awe. 
So I lay down in the church driveway. It was dirt gravel, no lights in the parking lot, freezing cold. And I briefly hoped, hmm, I hope nobody pulls in here and runs me over. But then I just fell into the sky. And President Bush fell away and the Capitol campaign and every small thing fell away. As Alan Lightman said in the reading Louise gave us, I fell into infinity. My body disappeared. I felt an overwhelming connection to the stars as if I were part of them. And the vast expanse of time from the far distant past long before I was born to the far distant future long after I'll die seemed compressed to a dot. I felt emerging with the cosmos a grand and eternal unity a hint of something absolute, and I have no idea how long I lay there looking up. It was just like that. And the next day, people sent these emails joking that it must have been an omen. The gods and goddesses are pleased with our excellent votes on the building project and the war. God at last is smiling down a benediction on the Unitarian Church. And of course, that was a joke. And of course, I spent many hours researching the aurora borealis and solar winds, magnetic fields, protons, electrons. It was still a mystical experience the more I learned about it, but not a superstitious one. And I wondered then, as I always have, how strange it is that people living side by side in a country or a town on a planet can believe such different things about the same thing. Because there surely are people all around, you know them as do I, who do believe that God sends signs directly, sends rain and northern lights to reward us when we're good, and thunderbolts and plagues to punish us when we're not, or just to prove God's terrifying strength. What makes a person think one way and not another about how this world is wired, about science and religion? You'd think this question would have been settled centuries ago as our hive mind advanced, our ant colony of learning expanded, crowdsourcing all the information. But the question wasn't settled. It's still not, obviously. It flares up in certain moments like the one we're in disturbingly. 42% of people in America, says Alan Lightman, believe in the constancy of species that humans were created in their present form in the first days of the planet, and that those days were not all that long ago. How can that be? Unitarian Universalism comes from a long tradition of people who called the quest for truth a sacrament. We come from ancestors persecuted, martyred, tortured for fomenting revolutions, not loudly necessarily, sometimes not even very publicly, but revolutions of imagination and invention, possibility, quietly, steadily, studiously, rigorously overthrowing entire empires of calcified belief. People faithful not to faith alone, but evidence. Giordano Bruno, Joseph Priestley, Charles Darwin, Mariah Mitchell. We come from a tradition that holds wonder to be a revolutionary spiritual discipline. For us, a kind of sacrament. And scientific method is for us a sacred practice. I think of Darwin for so many years, reluctant to publish what he'd written, what he knew, what he worked so hard to disprove once he had glimpsed it. 
which is the essence of the scientific method, right? That commitment to shredding your own beloved theory to pieces when something new and sounder comes clear. Darwin kept quiet for a long time about the origin of species, put his manuscript in a door, locked it, pondered in his heart, because he knew the implications of what he dared imagine and then proven. He knew the implications, and he just wasn't quite ready to topple 2,000 years of church doctrine, wasn't quite ready to blow up the whole world, start a revolution. And then he did, because he couldn't not. He was called by his conscience to speak the truth. For many, many millions of Americans, science just isn't real. Or if it is, it's one option among many. You might accept the law of gravity, say, because you've sort of experienced it, but not the unanimous conclusions of scientists all over the world regarding vaccination, for example, or climate change or evolution. How can this be? It's about education and environment, but it is more than that. It's about a fear in us, ancient fear of mystery, of the unknown. Science at its core loves questions way more than it loves certainty and facts because science doesn't settle ever. It just keeps wondering and searching. Knowledge, says Chet Remo, astrophysicist, is an island, a little tiny island in a sea of mystery. All that we know, he says, now and forever, all scientific knowledge we have or ever will is as an island in the sea. And still the mystery surrounds us. We don't like that instinctively. Something deep and primal in us, reptilian, suspicious, does not like mystery at all or ambiguity or change. Maria Papova is a writer and a curator, a biographer of scientists and artists, many of whom were early Unitarians, women and men. She writes, at watershed moments of upheaval and transformation, we anticipate with terror the absence of familiar parts of life and of ourselves that are being washed away by the current of change or new ideas. But we fail to envision the unfamiliar gladness and gratifications the new tide will bring, the unfathomed presences, for our imaginations are always bounded by our experience." The unknown awakens in us a reptilian dread, she says, that plays out with the same ferocity on scales personal, societal, and civilizational, whether triggered by a new life chapter or a new political regime or a new world order. It is the same dread, she says, to which the Inquisition gave shape and sinew in punishing all who dared to consider that the universe might be far vaster more mysterious than the consolations of mythology had preached for millennia. To be a revolutionary, says Maria Papova, is to be in possession of an imagination capable of leaping across the frontier of the familiar to envision a new order in which that which is gained eclipses the ill-serving comfort of all that's lost. Two years ago, at the height 
of the pandemic lockdown, when we were all terrified and newly traumatized and isolated and moving in that sort of day's slow motion from one room to the next, not sure what to do as the world shrank to the size of a screen. I thought a lot, as I'm sure you did, about essential workers who knew exactly what to do and what they had to do. So I thought about teachers, nurses, EMTs, bus drivers, trash collectors, grocery cashiers. And I thought about scientists in a way that normally I don't. Scientists all over the world speaking in a hundred different languages, the common language of concern and urgency, racing against time toward a vaccine for COVID. At night, I'm scared, right? I fell asleep knowing that they were working around the clock and I pictured them. And in the daytime, I would picture them sleeping, their lab coats hanging up on plastic hooks, the lenses of their tired microscopes peering down at nothing in the dark, at least for a few hours. And I remember just sending them blessings, wishing them well, rest for those brilliant minds, restoration of their tired bodies, these people striving to make medicine for us, for every single person on the whole planet. In those early days of COVID, I don't think we believed it would happen, a vaccine, not soon enough. And now, two years out, we already take it for granted and can't remember to get our booster shots. I remember in 2020, which seems like light years ago, when I first read that lab technicians and public health workers were receiving death threats as they tracked the spreading virus and begged us to wear masks. And I thought then about how I came first to think and feel about science and religion and about how for me, there is no clear line between the two and there never has been. And I wrote a poem then and dedicated it to the nurses and the doctors, researchers all over the world who were working so hard to save our lives. In Sunday school, we learned it all was made in seven days. Light from luminous darkness, heaven and earth, the animals, and not so long ago, they said, miracle on miracle. But then on Monday morning, Mrs. Warner took our whole first grade to the city on a school bus, where in the Hall of Dinosaurs, pterodactyl flying, T-Rex, floor to ceiling, I heard a different gospel. And looking up so small at six years old, I was converted there in that marble cathedral on Central Park West, the Museum of Natural History. In second grade, they took us to the Hayden Planetarium, darkness, infinite, eternal. And looking up, I made my first communion, drinking mystery and wonder. Look up, look out, look all around, look deep into the data, particle, planet, atoms, and stars. This is a practice of prayer, seeking and beseeching, the catechism of questions, the echo of sermons in stones. Inside the covers of my Bible, I taped the periodic table beside the pastel painting of Moses with the tablets on Mount Sinai, a place for everything and everything in place while the great earth spun me round. In Sunday school, I learned the language of lament and praise 
still useful every day. I learned we are a little lower than the angels. I learned we are not God. And this is true. And from Mrs. Warner, Mrs. Hogan, Mr. Dutton, Mrs. Milrad, the saints of George Washington Elementary School and Eastview Junior High, in biology and chemistry, geology, geometry, I received the sacraments of science, the holy, unwavering commandments of experiment and proof. A novice, I learned to place my faith in questions, the evidence of things unseen. This religion saves me still. And maybe it was the same for you. In my case, a public education anchored in good science never shook my faith in the beauty of the world and the mystery, but just the opposite. It never eclipsed my capacity for humility and wonder, but just the opposite. And it did not contradict, but dovetailed with what the teachers, volunteers in the Presbyterian Church School told me about humility and grace and right relation. There is something moving to me, something very tender, in the testimony of astronomers staring at the stars without their telescopes, or astrophysicists lying on their backs, as we all have on the grass, in the driveway, in the snow, in the bottom of a little boat in summer, where sometimes it's so dark that the stars are all around you. They're in the sky, and they're in the water, and you lose yourself like that. You fall into infinity. And there are people who can fill, and I'm so grateful there are, who can fill entire libraries with calculations and equations to explain the stars, their density and age, their composition and dimension, their impossible distance from where we are right now in time and space. But it's equally moving to me and maybe more impressive when those scientists speak in poetry as well as formulae about transcendence and mystery and wonder. And it reminds me, science is a language anybody can learn to speak. It's a song we can all learn to teach our children. It's not a matter of belief or destiny, but practice. The astronomer is not a shaman, but just a person who maybe, as a little kid, fell head over heels one night into the glimmering black bowl of sky, and they were never quite able to pull themselves out after that, but just paddled deeper and deeper into mystery and understanding. Neil deGrasse Tyson writes about that. Chet Remo, the physicist, reports, I lie on my back and the light of 10,000 stars enters my eyes. 10,000 subtle but distinct wavelets of energy enter my eyes at slightly different angles from out of the depths of space. And by some miracle, my eyes and brain sort it all out, put each star in its proper place, recognize the patterns of the constellations, and open my soul to a universe whose length and breadth exceed my wildest imagining. Starlight falls on me like rain. It blows across me like wind. I am soaked and shaken. It's moving to me always to realize everybody has probably done this. Or if, like one child I know, they're too little yet to go outside on their own at night, they will. Every human mind has traveled light years into imagination, and there is enormous comfort 
says the poet, an enormous comfort in knowing we all live under this same sky, whether in New York or Dhaka, we see the same sun and same moon. When it is night in New York, the sun shines in Dhaka, fog hangs on the horizon, and suddenly Broadway, Times Square, look dimly like Buriganga and Lakshmi Bazaar. We all live under this same sky. And looking up, looking in, gazing into telescopes, microscopes, some few brilliant ones among us dare to answer the silence of the stars with music and art and vaccines and medicine and cathedrals and bridges and Zoom technology to hold us together, even when we're not exactly. Imagination is always revolution. You have to let go of what is in order to welcome what could possibly potentially be, and that is a fearsome unend upending. People don't always thank you for it. Whether your claim is that the flat, reliable land is actually a spinning ball hurtling through space and time, or whether your claim is wilder still, that love is contagious and greater than fear, that hope is a muscle that builds when we flex it, that light will return in the dead of winter if we call it back with stories and songs stomping our feet in the cold. And already in St. Paul and Des Moines, it is not dark anymore at five o'clock in the evening or 6.30 in the morning. So clearly our magic is working. Imagine on a winter night, not long from now, you will have a flash of genius. You will put down your phone, switch off the TV, push pause on the looping playlist of anxiety, step away from your Twitter despair, and you'll go to the window, or better yet, step outside. It will be icy cold. And you'll look up at this vast ocean of stars, mindful that you are likely joined in this by millions of people you'll never know doing the same thing because people always are doing it and they always have. And together with them, you'll greet your old friend Orion up there with his blingy belt and his bow and you'll reach for his hand and together you'll recalculate what's saving your life right now. What do you love? What brings you joy? What should you be doing? Who needs your help? You'll ask all the questions that matter and let go for a moment all of the ones that just don't. And you'll think, isn't it beautiful? This enfolding darkness in the winter, in the north, in the west, when we're waiting all together for the light and the melting of ice. And answers will come to you like comets, not many, but enough, enough to give you light to go on, no matter what's ahead. And when you're ready, you'll step back in to where it's warm and maybe speak a prayer of gratitude for all of that. In these icy days of visible breath, may we keep open to wonder and the miracles around us, the miracles of earth and sky, the miracles we are opening the windows of the mind, opening the spirit's door to all the truth and light and hope that wait for us out there, just beyond the threshold of what we think we know. May we keep open to each other and to transformations, revolutions, evolution that we can't yet even imagine. So may it be.